You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we've brought back one of our favorite guests. Although yes, I am biased on this sin, no doubt about that. But um, we're talking today about gospel differences. A, a good question to ask, why are there differences in the gospels? You go to Matthew and you read a story and then you go to Mark or Luke and you read that same story and that story it doesn't seem entirely the same. You can tell it's the same story but there are some differences there. Does this affect reliability of the New Testament? Does this affect inerrancy? So in order to answer the question why are there differences in the Gospels I brought on the man who wrote the book why are there differences in the Gospels? <clears throat> my guest, <laughs> you can hear him laughing now, my guest is, in fact, Mike Lacona. He has a PhD in New Testament Studies from Pretoria, which he completed with distinction. He serves as the Associate Professor in Theology at Houston Baptist University. He was interviewed by Lee Strober in his book, The Case for Real Jesus, and appeared in Strober's video, The Case for Christ. He's the author of numerous books, including Wild for Differences in the Gospels, where we can learn from ancient biography, which we're talking about today, published by Oxford University Press, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach, from IVP Academic, and Paul Meets Muhammad from Baker, co-author with Gary Habermas as well, the award-winning book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, from Crager, and co-editor with William Dimsky of Evidence for God, 50 Arguments for Faith from a Bible, History, Philosophy, and Science, which was done through Baker. Mike is a member of the Evangelical Theological and Philosophical Societies, the Institute for Biblical Research, and the Society of Biblical Literature. He has spoken on more than 90 university campuses and has appeared on dozens of radio and television programs. And I think I'm the only podcaster who can say this, and I can say it to only two people on the show when I in the world when I say on my show, but I'm one of the few podcasters who can introduce Mike Lacona, just one of two, three possible people in the world I can think of who can introduce him and say, welcome to the show, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thanks, son. <laughs> now, this isn't just friendly talk going on here. I can say that as well as his son, Kurt Sarah, that you ever did in podcasting, and his daughter, who I am married to, could say that. So this isn't just friendly talk, is it? That's true. That's very true. <laughs> now, Mike, if uh, my audience doesn't know who you are, could you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, um, you mean just uh, in in general for the ministry or, or for this particular topic? It, for for ministry, then maybe if you want to, you can key in on this topic. Okay. Well, I got started in this when... 
in, I would say it's the fall of 1985. I was in my last semester of graduate studies at Liberty University. And I began to have doubts about the truth of the Christian faith. Um, it wasn't because I had come in contact with atheists or Muslims or any agnostics of any sort. Uh, very honestly, I'd had very little contact um, with those, with skeptics. Um, it was a Christian university. I was specializing in New Testament studies and uh, loving it. And uh, just one day, I just started to ask myself the question, how do I know this is true? And if I'd been born in Afghanistan, maybe I'd be a Muslim. If I'd been born in India, maybe I'd be a Hindu and China an atheist. Maybe the reason I'm a Christian is because I was born in the United States, um, where that, at least at that point, was the major religion that was, you know, around. Um, so, yeah, I think I've got this relationship with the Lord. I've, I've spent a lot of time in prayer and Bible study, and I, I there have been times when I've really sensed the Lord's presence. But do people in other religions have it as well? Am I just really deceiving myself and wasting my life? So that uh, got me interested in talking to someone about it, and someone referred me to Gary Habermas, whom you know as well now. Mm -hmm. And um, they said he was very approachable. And so I went to him. It's funny because I'd had several roommates who had been involved in the Master of Arts in, in Christian apologetics at Liberty, and they were really into apologetics. I had no interest in apologetics whatsoever. It's Poor like, kid of first soul. Yeah, it's, well, it's like, you know, I know Christianity's true. I've got this relationship with the Lord. What do I need? To, I don't care about David Hume. Who's asking? Who's uh, who's asking or giving those kinds of uh, objections anyway? I'm not. I haven't run into people who were at that point. So I, I lived a pretty sheltered life. So when I started having doubts, then it's like I wanted to talk to someone who knew about apologetics, and that's how I, I met Gary and talked to him. And but then, um, you know, you can't be with someone all the time and keep asking them questions, or you you really start bugging them. Um, and then. So I, I'd have questions, you know, and then I'd wait several months and I'd call Gary again. And that poor guy, I, <laughs> I'm just glad uh, he answered my questions. But gosh, he gets calls all the time from people. And I don't I, I guess he can't take them all now because he has so many. I mean, he was the great Gary Habermas then. But I mean, now he's the, the man, the myth and the legend, you know, even a bigger footprint now than he had back then. So, but I'm thankful that he spent the time with me because it, it really helped me. And he, he'd point me to books. He'd point me to resources. And, you know, I'd have to go read those myself. Um, you, you can't spoon feed everything. So um, uh, I'd go read those and he'd refer me to more. And that's how I got involved and how I got a lot of my questions answered. So that that's what got me into it. And then I wanted to start teaching this kind of stuff. Um so, yeah, that's how I got involved in apologetics. The, the way I got involved in this topic about gospel differences is um, through my two debates with Bart Ehrman, my first two debates with him uh, back in 2008 and 2009, when we debated on the resurrection of Jesus, he would always bring up gospel contradictions, gospel differences. And I'd, um, you know, we were debating on the resurrection, and I knew at that point that that was not a deal killer when it came to the resurrection, because all you need— to do with resurrection is you need to come up with some facts, historical facts to work with that are beyond dispute. And you formulate hypotheses based on those facts. And just like any other piece of ancient literature, that piece of literature does not need to be inerrant or divinely inspired in order to get those kinds of facts. 
You can have contradictions. You can have errors in those documents and still mine from them certain facts that are pretty much beyond dispute. You can do that with the New Testament literature as well and come up with certain facts like, you know, Jesus' disciples sincerely believed that he had been raised and had appeared to them in, in a transformed resurrection corpse. Um, what do you do with that then as a historian? And you have to weigh different hypotheses. And when you look at that, resurrection hypothesis is the only one that really makes sense. So even if there were uh, problems in the Gospels with all these different problems that Ehrman would raise, like authorship, bias, contradictions, the dating of the Gospels, whether there was eyewitness testimony, and it, it still wouldn't do anything to undermine the case that we could build for the resurrection of Jesus. Nevertheless, the differences in the Gospels posed a real challenge and, and um, some to, to many believers and really disturbed them. So I decided that I would start looking into it. And um, by that point, you had people like Richard Burridge and Craig Keener and others who were saying that the Gospels belonged to the genre of Greco-Roman biography. And that uh, genre had different types of reporting than we would in modern biography, that there were certain flexibilities involved that some we use today in modern biography, some we don't. Um, so I wondered if understanding what those the flexibilities would be, because very, very few people even talk about those. So I wondered, you know, if we were able to detect those kind of differences, if that would shed light. On the compositional devices involved, the way that they would report things in a more flexible manner, if that would shed light on why there are differences in the Gospels. And that's what led me into this eight-year study culminating in the, the Oxford book that just came out. Mm -hmm. and I'd like to say a few things about the story that you told us so far about it. You know, Gary Habermas is definitely someone easy to approach, and I know him well now, in fact, because I was talking before, but ultimately... He was the one who introduced me to Rowley. And so I, I've often told Gary, if a, a project ever just doesn't start working out for you, you could always go into the matchmaking business. You found you got some pretty good success there. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and uh, you, uh, I think we should stress you were at Liberty University when this happened. And obviously that's because you didn't know about HBU at the time, right? That's correct. I didn't know about <laughs> HBU. <laughs> Now, I had a very good experience at, at Liberty University from undergrad from the fall of 73 uh, through the spring of, uh, I'm sorry, 79 through the spring of 83, and then uh, grad school from the fall of 83 to the fall of 85. It was, it was just a great time there, made great friends, uh, grew a lot spiritually, very positive experience. And, in fact, one of those debates that you talked about having with Bart Ehrman, I was there in the audience for one of those debates. And, in fact, you remember that because you thought I was an atheist. Yep. Um, you know, as most people who know you, um, you know, know that you have Asperger's and you came up and, and I remember you, you came up to meet me and you had this blank stare that a lot of folks with Asperger's have. And it's like, okay, well... What is he thinking? Is he going to kill me? Is he an atheist? What, does he hate me? What? What is this? <laughs> so, uh, so glad I was mistaken on that. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, so, so am I. Now, when we're talking about this book, why the differences in the Gospels? One of the things I'd like to say at the start, and I think this is a good principle for research, is that the one of the impressive things that 
you were surprised by this was that uh, Oxford published the book. And a lot of people, I think, would look and say, well, what does that really matter? I mean, some when I tell you about a book, you're saying, well, who published it? And some people might think, is he being pedantic? Is it just trivia that he's wondering? Why does the publisher matter so much? <laughs> well, you know, I would say a publisher like Oxford is they're committed to very high standards, uh, academic standards, that is. Um, now, you know, very honestly, all publishers are interested in, in making money, some more than others. Um, I mean, you'll have some publishers like Brill and um, DeGroyter and some others that they're not going to make a ton of money. They're just not going to sell to a lot. They're going to mainly sell to libraries, you know, because their books are extremely expensive. You'll have books that go from $150 all the way up to over $1,000 for a book. Um, So they're not making a whole lot of money and they're not selling a lot. Um, Oxford is going to have some books that will sell a few hundred copies, monographs. And they're going to be priced at about one hundred and thirty five dollars. And then you're going to have, you know, some like uh, some of Bart Ehrman's books, which are more popular level. Uh, Some of the ones that he does that are going to be more like thirty dollars. Mine is priced more like a popular level, although it's an academic book. Um, But it doesn't read in a stilted fashion like an academic book. It's not going to be a real simple read like The Shack um, or. You know, a lot of other popular level books, but um, it, it's an academic book. It's going to have a lot of information in it. But I, I guess the bottom line, Nick, is that it, uh, one like Oxford has a reputation that they have to uphold. They don't want to put out any kind of junk. And I can tell you that before my book even got accepted, uh, the manuscript, propo- the book proposal, they sent it out to three scholars uh, and said, okay, here's here's this idea given by this this author, and um, what do you think? You know, and it was in the various fields of classics and New Testament studies. And if any of them come back and say, hey, this is not a worthy contribution, uh, this has already been done, um, this is not worthy of Oxford publishing it, unless all three of them come back with with that, then they scrap it. So. Um, and sometimes they'll make exceptions and do things like that. But when you get a, a really good academic publisher, and they've got a, a reputation they have to uphold. Uh, and it doesn't mean if you don't get published by Oxford that you're a bad author or that you have. I mean, wow. I mean, Oxford was, has been a good publisher for me. But IVP mm-hmm. and Baker right. were excellent publishers. And I'd say they were just as good mm. as, as Oxford just as good. And they put out really good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I would also say that because I've published with Oxford now, you know, you'd have some that say, well, he's only publishing with the evangelical publishers. Well, not anymore, right? Right. And I stress this because we live in a day and age where most anything on the internet can be seen as reliable and such. Yeah. And of course, we have to be cautious with that because, I mean, I've got some stuff that's self-published, as it were, on Kindle and such, and I think it's pretty good stuff that some other people might disagree. It, it doesn't mean it's bad, but it does mean, though, that if you can bypass the regular means of publishing, it doesn't mean your ideas necessarily should be taken seriously. But if you go through real academic publishing houses and such, 
that carries a lot more weight. So I, I do tell people, when you're looking at a book, find out who published it. It really tells you a lot about it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's true to an extent, of course. Yeah. And, and you're right about the self-publishing. Um, if, if a person can, they ought to try to get published. It does add credibility. It is difficult to get published, especially the first time, because there are so many out there trying to get published. So mm-hmm. many. And um, I mean, both Baker and IVP and Kriegel told me that they're getting unsolicited manuscripts all the time. And, um, you know, you, you just you give them out to the, the editors to look at and then they bring it before the committee and they'll present it. And unless everyone is for it, they reject it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to get published, to get started, and especially the first time. And I can say that um, until my big resurrection book was published, um, and and even that, I had to go to maybe 10, 20 publishers before one accepted it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm glad IVP accepted it. Um, I mean, I went to a lot of the, like, Brill and DeGroyter and some of these others, the, the highly academic ones. I'm I'm really glad that none of them actually ended up publishing it because it would have only – it would have looked really good on a CV, but I would have only sold maybe 400 copies. But now, I mean, this book, my big resurrection book is, I think there are about 8,000 copies that have been sold, which is really, really good for a 700 and some page book. Um, and and that wouldn't have happened unless it got published by someone like, um, like, like IVP. But Baker mm-hmm. turned it down. They thought it was too big. And, uh, but IVP took it. Um, so, I mean, you can get, but but since that book, now it's really interesting, Nick, because publishers are now coming to me and saying, please, let us look at your next book. And I have several book proposals that are out, and, you know, the, these publishers, Zondervan, Baker, IVP, Kriegel, all, all these guys, OUP, they, they want the book. So um, they're coming to me now, which is, is kind of nice, actually. And, and, um, but the only reason is because they know it. It, they'll they'll sell now. They know that my books will sell, and that's why they're interested in it. Before they didn't know it it would sell, so it's kind of a risk for them. So that's why it's kind of hard to get published. And you and I have talked about this some because one of our past podcasts that we did with Jerry Habermas, we're going to do expand on it, and we're hoping to get that published. We are. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no guarantee. <laughs> um, I know that Gary and I, when we. Uh, Shop the case for the resurrection of Jesus. I mean that that has now mm-hmm. sold about thirty thousand copies. Uh, mm-hmm. It's still out there. Kriegel's real happy with it, but we probably had ten, fifteen, twenty publishers turn us down before that. And Gary had done, you know, probably two dozen books by that time. But that was by first. So that first book is really difficult to get published. And. Uh, if anyone out there is a bit hesitant still, I'd like to keep in mind that uh, the Harry Potter book series, one of the best-selling book series of all time, was turned down consistently before I finally found someone who published it. And I'm pretty sure right now every single publishing house that has a manuscript is kicking themselves severely for not taking that one. Yeah, yeah. It's tough, though, you know? It's tough for the author. It's tough for the publisher. You know, they're taking a chance. And it's just tough. It, it, if you get published, doesn't mean you're special. I'm I'm no more special than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my books. When I talk about the ones that are selling, and 
it um i mean that's nothing compared to what cold Christ, uh, cold case christianity or lee strobel's books are, are selling for or nabil qureshi's or nabil's you know the more popular level apologetics books sell a whole lot more than mm-hmm. more of the mm-hmm. you know the, the stuff with the hard mm-hmm. academic mm-hmm. um content yeah now let's uh, get into the book here now, your idea of this was to go to Plutarch. Now, for my listeners who might not know, who exactly was Plutarch? Well, first, let's talk about who he was not. Okay. He's, he's not the character in The Hunger Games. Oh! <laughs> Plutarch of Chaeronea uh, in Greece. He was born around the year 40 and died around the year just after the year 120. Um, a prolific writer. Um, he wrote more than 60 biographies, of which 50 have survived. And for most of them, for 46 out of the 50 that have survived, he put them in what are called parallel lives. So for he would he would put them together in, um, in twos. So you'd have like Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great. So first he would tell the story of Alexander the Great, give a full biography of that, and then he'd give a full biography of Julius Caesar. And then he had a, a little uh, uh, supplement to that that was the parallels. And he would talk about the similarities between Alexander and Caesar, all the different. So you talk about parallel mania, mm-hmm. how people tried to draw parallels with Jesus and these pagan figures. Mm-hmm. Well, what Plutarch was doing yeah, he, he shows us that you can do this with just about anything, of course. And he would take these two figures, he'd pair up two figures. And a then Greek and a Roman, the, right? A Greek and a Roman, and then show all the differences, all, all the similarities between them. Mm-hmm. He would highlight some differences, but mainly he'd be highlighting all the similarities, the things that they accomplished, similarities in their personalities and their character traits. And uh, like I said, this is for 46 of the 50 lives. So you're looking at, um, you know, 23 sets uh, that he did this to. So um, it's rather interesting. He's a great writer, um, a lot more easy and fun to read, at least Mm -hmm. in my view, than Suetonius and some of the others. Mm. Um, He's considered to be a, a pretty good historian. Yeah, among the best. He wasn't considered to be the most accurate or the best, but he was considered to be in that group of the finest biographers, historians of that day. And um, a lot of what we know about the ancient world comes from Plutarch. So why he was used um, in my study was I had to put together a list when I was looking at ancient biography. I wanted to put together a list of all the biographies that were written around the time of Jesus within, say, about 150 years on each side. And there are about 90 of them that I found. And so it's interesting to see that Plutarch wrote 50 of them. So I figured, well, I'm going to start with Plutarch, and then I'll go to Suetonius and these and, and, and the others. But even though I'd re- read some of Suetonius's 12 Caesars and some others before, I really never got out of Plutarch's lives. And the reason being is by the time I got through it the first time, and I went through three times, By the time I got through the first time, I realized that nine of those 50 biographies involved people who lived at the same time, who for the large part knew one another and participated in many of the same events. 
as a result, Plutarch will tell the same story on several occasions. So, for example, he'll tell the story of Caesar's assassination in his life of Caesar, his life of Cicero, his life of Brutus, his life of Antony. And this provides historians with a unique opportunity. Um, it's You don't find it much where else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is where you can compare how the same author using the same sources tells the same story. Mm-hmm. And by do, doing this, you can see how he reports the same story differently. And mm-hmm. you can look at it with a fine-tooth comb. And then from that, you can assess the various compositional devices that he may have been using that would result in the differences. Mm-hmm. And this just set a wonderful springboard to looking at the Gospels, which you're looking at four authors, many of whom use the same sources, um, reporting the same stories, and yet differences appear. Mm-hmm. Could it be that they're using the same kind of compositional devices that Plutarch used and that reported in differences? And that's what studies about. I think some other points you can make of comparison with the Gospels where we look at the differences and similarities in such also is that sometimes some of our critics will say that we should discount the Gospels because they're biased and they vote with a motive. But Plutarch definitely did the same thing. He didn't write history just to write history, did he? No, and usually the critics who say such things... Um, they either have an axe to grind mm-hmm. or it's because they're just all they, you know, they're not studying mm-hmm. ancient literature. They're just looking at the gospel text. And a lot of Christians do that as well. You know, mm-hmm. just look at the gospels. They look at the New Testament. They have these preconceived ideas of what inspired scripture should look like. Um, what's really interesting is uh, and and that was me. That was me as well. Um, what was interesting at the end of my study, you know, I, I started to realize some interesting things, and that is I had now looked at the secular histories, biographies written around that time, and I came to realize as I saw how they would report the same things differently, that what struck me about the Gospels, although the differences initially struck me, now looking at the other ancient literature outside the biblical text, what was striking me was not so much the differences in the Gospels as much as the similarities. When Plutarch tells the same story, um, and I found within those nine biographies, I found 36 stories that he tells two or more times, some as many as seven times. Uh, What really struck me is when you look at Plutarch's telling and retelling the same story, he, he'll paraphrase, you rarely ever see a word-for-word similarity. It's not like he copies and pastes. Right. Uh, but when you come to the Gospels, they copy and paste a lot. You'll find word-for-word um, similarities on many, many occasions in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. You don't find that in Plutarch. You don't find that in a lot of the other sources. So again, what strikes you more when you read the Gospels are the similarities and how closely they state to the sources. We don't know why. It might be because, say, Matthew and Luke revered Mark's Gospel because they knew it was based on the testimony of Peter, the lead apostle. So maybe that's why there's such similarities between them. Mm-hmm. Or the, if there's a Q source, whether Luke is using Matthew, Matthew using Luke, or Matthew and Luke are using a common source, which is just nicknamed 
Q, short for quella, the German word for source, which would be a lost source. It could be oral tradition. It could be written. For all we know, it might have been the notes that one of the apostles took while being with Jesus. Um, you, you see how they stick to these sources far more closely than what Plutarch did with his sources or what Suetonius or Cassius Dio do with their sources. It, it's pretty interesting to see these things. But, you know, uh, in terms of the bias, like you said, they're all biased. We're biased. The readers are biased. We're going to say that you can't believe a source because the source is biased. Then we could never trust an African-American historian who writes on slavery in the United States. Mm-hmm. We could never trust a Jewish historian who writes on the Holocaust. And, of course, that's that's ridiculous, right? I mean, right. you would say, well, the Jewish historian would probably be the best historian, the African-American historian, the best historian to write on these kinds of topics, because it's something that they are pa- about which they are passionate, and rightly so. And so a Christian who had walked with Jesus or had known someone who had walked with Jesus would be precisely the kind of person that you would want writing one of these Gospels, a biography of Jesus. Another thing that keeps some people from being hesitant to trust the Gospels often is that the Gospels are anonymous, and this is supposedly a problem, but so are Plutarch's biographies, aren't they? All of them are. Plutarch's name does not appear anywhere in any of his biographies. Um, The same can be said about uh, Plato, Porphyry, the skeptic Porphyry, Galen, um, you know, a, a number of them, they, they don't have their names on them. It doesn't mean that we don't have any idea. And anyone who says we have no idea who wrote the Gospels isn't following scholarship, or at least either that or they're being disingenuous, or they're, or they're saying they don't know who wrote the Gospels, but they're just saying scholars don't. Now, scholars mm. have a pretty good idea who wrote at least some of the Gospels, the majority of scholars, I should say a slight majority, think uh, or go with the traditional authorship of Mark, that Mark primarily got his information from Peter. The slight majority of scholars um, go with very close to the traditional authorship of Luke. They say that Luke was a traveling companion of Paul and got his information from eyewitnesses. Now, according to Craig Keener, I've asked him about this, This is what the majority of scholars say. They don't say that it was Luke, but they really don't give any reasons for rejecting Luke as the name of the person. But they do say it was a traveling companion of Paul who knew, you know, and had also interviewed the eyewitnesses. So in the case of Mark and Luke, you've got two people who knew eyewitnesses and got information from them. When it comes to John's gospel, I've asked Craig Keener about this. Again, I'm going to scholars who have just really, really focused on this stuff. And and I think in terms of Keener for Luke and, and John, it, it's hard to find someone better than that who can address the, the question of the, what the majority of scholars are saying about the authorship of these. And Keener says that the majority of scholars today, and that's not only conservative, but it's also moderate, liberal, agnostic, atheist, Jewish scholars, those who have specialized with John, they do not think that John, the son of Zebedee, was the author of John's gospel, the traditional authorship. Um, I, I do. I follow Keener on this and, and Blomberg. I, I'm, I'm convinced by Keener's arguments on this. Um, but even some evangelicals aren't. Like, for example, Richard Baucom thinks that 
one of Jesus' minor disciples wrote John's Gospel. Um, ben Witherington. Ben Witherington thinks that it was Lazarus. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds crazy, but actually Witherington presents a, a very compelling argument that, honestly, it would compel me if mm-hmm. it had support in the early church fathers, but not a single one of them appeals to Lazarus. Lazarus' name is never mentioned as an author of John's Gospel. Everyone who mentions the author of John's Gospel says it's the son of Zebedee, except one and possibly two sources. So um, other than that, it's all across the board uh, as John, the son of Zebedee. But that said, the majority of scholars today think that the author of John's Gospel was either one of Jesus's minor disciples or, as Dale Allison at Princeton thinks, um, whoever wrote John's Gospel used one of Jesus' disciples as their primary source. So in the case of Mark, Luke, and John, you at least have these gospel authors who are getting their information from the eyewitnesses. That's really strong. So to say we have no idea who wrote the gospels, again, it's either, it's just flat out wrong. It is. It's just flat out wrong. We do have a pretty good idea who wrote those gospels. And when it comes to Plutarch, we the testimony we have actually comes from his grandson. Well, not really. <laughs> um, it come, You have what's called the Lamprius Catalog, and it has been falsely attributed to his grandson. Yeah. Yeah. But it was written too long afterward, to because it's dated. We don't know exactly when it's dated, but a lot think that it's 3rd or 4th century. Plutarch dies at the beginning of the 2nd century. Mm-hmm. And given how long people lived back then, it would have been pretty difficult for that to have been his grandson. I, mm-hmm. I, it's remotely possible, but it, it'd, be, it'd be pretty difficult. Um, so the main evidence we have that Plutarch wrote it is from a document falsely attributed to his grandson. Mm-hmm. And yet I don't know of any classical scholar today who would say that Plutarch did not write those 50 biographies attributed to him or the Moralia uh, that's also attributed to him. You know, across the board, they would say that Plutarch wrote these. Mm-hmm. So the evidence we have for the authorship of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is actually quite superior to the evidence we have for Plutarch's lit- the Plutarchan literature. Um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty good what we have. Yeah, and another parallel we can talk about this is that so many times those critics that you encounter, especially ones in my audience for encounter who are on the internet, would be told, yeah, the Gospels are very so late. I mean, these were written decades after the events. That's even, that's far earlier than Plutarch's events were, aren't they? Well, for most of them, yes. For, mm-hmm. Not for all of them. I mean, Plutarch is writing about Otho and Galba, mm-hmm. who are in the late I think they wrote they they reigned in the late sixties. They both had short reigns because they they both were about to be killed. Uh, Otho killed himself, and I forgot what happened with Galba. But um, he wrote on them, and if they're let's just put them around seventy. So at the most, he's writing about fifty years later, but he's probably writing about them earlier than then. Um, so yes, in some cases, he's writing about he's writing about some people a little bit earlier than we have with the Gospels. 
But for the most part, like when he's writing about the major figures like Caesar, Cicero, Pompey, and Antony, Brutus, he's writing about 140 years after those figures had died, more than 140 years later. And then he writes about a lot of people who are even much further removed than that, like, for example, Thesis, the legendary founder of Greece. He's writing about a thousand years after Thesis. Mm-hmm. Romulus, the legendary founder of Rome, he's writing about 800 years after Romulus. Right. So uh, now, in, in fairness, he says that in, in the first, chap- or first chapter of his life of Thesis, he's pretty much saying that for Thesis and Romulus, and he's writing as him as a pair, he says that, you know, don't be under any illusions that this is accurate history. But he does say that the people that he'd written about that are more toward his own time, people like Caesar and Cicero, that these were expected to be historically reliable because he had good sources. Well, wow, if 140 plus years later is fine, and we look at this as we can be confident and pretty confident confident in the historical accuracy, then we ought to be pretty confident in the historical accuracy of the Gospels whose authors are writing within 35 to 65 years of the events themselves and got their information, for the most part, from the eyewitnesses. Yeah, I'm thinking about how a Richard Carrier once responded to someone. Her name escapes me now. They might have been Grove Heist. I don't know for sure, but he was just saying that there's more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead met. There's a better case that Jesus rose from the dead met uh, Caesar across the Rubicon. And Carrier talks to his audience of college students and says that uh, all the great historians of the age mention it's, it's Appius, Ratonius, Plutarch, Cassius Dio, and all these college students no doubt were eating it up, and I'm um, thing could you maybe mention that this first source that you have would be a hundred years later after the event? Mm, yeah, and you know what? It's not every ancient source that mentions it. There are only four. Yeah. Who, who directly mentioned the Rubicon crossing, uh, and the earliest is like 65 years later, and um, then the latest is 150 years later. So you have these four sources that directly mention it, and they're mentioning it within 65 to 150 years later. Mm-hmm. With the Gospels, you have direct mention of Jesus uh, within 35 to 65 years. Now, Carrier could say that you do have Caesar's commentaries. Um, and you have some others who write about uh, uh, him. They do not mention the Rubicon crossing. However, they do give us indirect testimony to it because they'll say that he's in such and such a place. And then it, they report that he's at another place as he comes on Rome to attack Rome. And he would have had to cross the Rubicon to get there. So even though he doesn't mention the Rubicon crossing, you can infer the Rubicon crossing, for sure, from mm. reports. And we can also say that Plutarch's writings, if someone wants to bring up miracles, Plutarch's writings also contain a lot of activity could be considered miraculous or paranormal, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, there's there's several things in there. There are portents that are mentioned, mm. comets and eclipses of the sun. Mm. Um, you know, phantoms. Phantoms. Mm-hmm. There's... Um, in fact, uh, when Brutus and and Cassius were uh, fighting um, Antony and Octavian at Philippi before the first battle, uh, I, um, the uh, 
phantom of Caesar appeared. Well, at Mm -hmm. least he interpreted it as a phantom of Caesar. But this, like, ghost, you know, an apparition appeared to him um, at night, scared him. Of course. And and said, um, I will see you. And and uh, Brutus looked at him and said, "I and I will see you," um, meaning on the battlefield. And he was victorious that next day. Well, then, before the next battle at Philippi, the same Philippi that Paul wrote a church uh, a letter to the church there later on, um, the the apparition appeared again to Brutus, and he knew that that was a portent that he would be defeated, and he was. So, I mean, yeah, you've got these kinds of things, and you'd say, well, it was that supernatural? Did that actually happen? I don't know. It, you know, I don't know. Apparitions do happen. I, I know people to whom apparitions have appeared, and you say, well, they were hallucinating. They have a mental illness or something. No, you know, um, you know a friend of mine, Pat Ferguson, she had an apparition appear to her one morning at 2.30, mm. and a friend of hers she had not seen for several years, and then... You know, about uh, 26, 27 hours, 30 hours later, she learns that this person, this friend died at the very moment she was awakened and seen this apparition. So I'm not going to say that these alleged apparitions that appeared to Brutus and some others that uh, that they're that they're fake. But your point, though, is that. Even these other ancient authors like Plutarch, like Suetonius and others, they report supernatural things in in their accounts, right? Yeah. I mean, I use a different word when you do, but yes, I think we can't mean the same thing. I think Dale Allison asked about having an apparition, didn't he? Yes, he has. Uh, he's had at least one of a friend of his, uh, a girl who had been married to one of his friends, and he said that she appeared to him, startled him. And uh, did not speak, if I remember right. It's been years since I read his account. Um, and it was either him or his family members who um, they had apparitions appear to them on s- some occasions and imparted some information to them. Like I, it was like call someone and wish them a happy birthday. And it had been their their dad's friend or something. And. And they called, and it happened to be that guy's birthday on that very day that they were calling. So um, mm-hmm. sometimes you get this – This I I don't know how you explain these in natural terms. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know why they happen. Yeah. I can't explain them. You say, well, are they compatible with the Christian view? I don't see why they're incompatible. I don't know that the Bible actually talks about them other than saying we shouldn't seek something like that. But if it does happen, I don't know that it's outside the Christian worldview. I find the stuff kind of interesting. I don't seek after it. I don't want to seek after it. I, I don't particularly want to experience it either. Um, but these things do happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I think one analogy you could use to explain this, the, the whole research you're doing here is that sometime last year, you and me and your son, Zach, all went to a Braves game together. And we all left from your house, and we all rode there together. And I can imagine if we got back, and you were listening to something in the car, and you wanted to stay there, and let's suppose that Zach wanted to say, well, maybe it was sports for dad. I go in first. Your wife, Debbie, is there. My wife, Allie, is there. And we say, how, how was your day today? 
And I tell him about it. I say, we've been driving for a while. I need to go to the restroom. And so I go to the bathroom. Then Zach decides he's going to come in. He's tired of waiting up there. They say the same thing to him. He tells them. He decides he's going to go up to his room. Then you come in. And they ask you the same question. Chances are we all have the same day pretty much. But we're going to give three very different accounts, aren't we? Yeah, probably. You know, if we have three different uh, mm-hmm. interests. Yeah. But the thing with Plutarch, though, I mean, is that we have the same guy, and he talks about the same event multiple times. That's right. But it's different every time. Yes, there's going to be differences, and there are a number of reasons for this, you know, mm-hmm. compositional devices. Then there's something called the law of biographical relevance. That That's mm-hmm. not my term mm-hmm. um, uh, from another historian. But the law of biographical relevance is basically that you know, the author is going to focus on some things that are more relevant mm-hmm. to the subject, the main mm-hmm. character of that particular biography. And that's going to result in things like literary spotlighting. Um, so, for example, when uh, Crassus is given some letters to deliver to Cicero and the Senate, warning them of Lucius, uh, uh, Lucius Sergius Catalina, um, of his uh, rebellion that he's planning. Um, when you look at the life of Cicero that Plutarch writes, it's Crassus and there are two other guys, I think Metellus and Marcellus, that um, uh, go with Crassus to Cicero's house and they deliver the letters. But in the life of Crassus, Plutarch only mentions Crassus, who takes the letters and goes to Cicero's house. So that's shining a literary spotlight on Crassus because he's the main character and Metellus and Marcellus, uh, Mm -hmm. they don't matter. They're not, you know, they really don't matter within the biography. So he only mentions Crassus. He doesn't say only Crassus, but he only mentions Crassus. His spotlight is on him. And that would be due to what is called the law of biographical relevance. That's all that matters. Or they might tell the story, uh, you know, from Caesar's perspective within Plutarch's life of Caesar. But if you're looking at it from Brutus's perspective, then he tells the story a little bit differently in the life of Brutus. That will account for some differences. But most of the differences are deliberate Mm -hmm. because of compositional devices, some of which are prescribed in what are called the compositional textbooks in antiquity. Yeah. Now, when you talk about the one person being left out in such, I mean, this could help explain, for instance, were there two demoniacs or one? Were there two angels of a tomb or one? Wouldn't That's that cool. be the same kind of principle? It would be. That that could certainly be literary spotlighting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the case when it comes at least to the women at uh, women going to the tomb, Mary Magdalene only being mentioned in John's gospel because she was the major woman there. Um, the angel, uh, only one mentioned in Mark and Matthew, probably because they're shining the spotlight on the angel who's making the announcement. It doesn't say only one angel, um, it, but it only mentions one in Mark and Matthew. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that Mary in John's gospel comes back, even though it's only Mary mentioned, but the fact that she comes back and announces to the disciples, they've taken the Lord, and we don't know where they've laid him, suggests the literary spotlighting. The fact that you have the um, Emmaus disciples 
um, I'm, I'm sorry, in Luke's gospel, yeah, the women come back and it says that Peter got up and ran to the tomb and found it as the women had said, uh, whereas John has Peter and the beloved disciple running to the tomb. Well, 12 verses later in Luke's gospel, after saying Peter got up and ran to the tomb and found it as the women had said, Jesus is talking to the Emmaus disciples and they said, hey, and they don't realize it's Jesus. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him, Luke says. And Jesus says, what happened? Well, they crucified Jesus, and but some of our women folk went to the tomb this morning and said they saw angels that said he had been raised. And then some of our own went to the tomb, plural, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. That's 12 verses after Luke had just mentioned Peter going to the tomb. So there seems to certainly be some clear cases of literary spotlighting that are going on in the Gospels and um, that and can easily account for many of the differences. Yeah, and uh, I think too often what we do is we, we kind of treat the Gospels like we should be modern biographies and tell everything explicitly and such, and it's just not going to happen that way, is it? No, it, and it's unfair to have those kind of expectations. I mean, you think about it, what if a modern historian was writing about the events of 9-11 and made the comment that these, in a final summary chapter, and said, in in conclusion, the, all the events that occurred on 9-11 were earth-shaking. Mm-hmm. Um, we would not condemn him for saying such a thing because that is an ink and an, – an idiom of 21st century English. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not trying to deceive, and someone reading this 100 years from now, 200, 500 years from now, it's their responsibility to understand the idioms. It's not the responsibility of us writing in the 21st century to try to guess what a person like that is going to be, how they're going to be reading things 500 years from now. Yeah. So in the same way, we have to understand that that people of all generations throughout human history, that there are certain linguistic idioms that are used, way of writing, and it's not their responsibility to get together and to say, well, how are people 2,000 years from now going to understand things and let's write in that way? Neither do they say, well, in order to avoid that, we're going to try to eliminate all figures of speech and linguistic <laughs> idioms. Um, they write according to the way people write in their culture. They use the same rules of writing, of composition that are used at that particular time. And it's our responsibility now to understand those, how they wrote back then, and not judge them for not using what we use today. Yeah, I, I think too often we make a mistake where we think the Bible is written to us in a way that 21st century Western Americans can immediately understand and now the Bible wasn't written to you. It was written for you, but it's not to you. Yeah, yeah. I think that's just clear, proper hermeneutical principles to keep in mind as we go to the scriptures and try to understand them. Now, one example you also use is, and you can correct me if I get something wrong with this, but Caesar is apparently at the statue of Alexander the Great, and yeah. weeping because he think he says Alexander the Great did so much more at such a younger age, and here I am, and what do I have to show for it? But in Plutarch's lives, these are placed years apart. Yeah, what ends up happening? Let's see if I can remember back uh, what I wrote there and, and from what I found. But we know that 
Caesar, well, there's a couple differences. In some accounts, it says uh, that he wept when he was at the statue, and that's probably what had happened. That's what other historians report. But I, if I remember correctly, Plutarch reports in his life of Caesar that Caesar wept when he was reading about Caesar rather than the statue. And I think Christopher Pelling, if I remember, he says that because reading was such a, a uh, an, an integral part of what people who would be reading Plutarch's lives, those those the elites and the literate, more than seeing a statue, and, they, and Plutarch wanted to emphasize the importance of reading, that he changed it from weeping at the statue to weeping at reading about um, Alexander. But the, the important thing here, even more important, is when it occurred, that's what you're pointing out here, yeah. um, it was at his, um, uh, I think that it was at his uh, praetorship, his praetorship in Spain, that this actually occurred. No, forgive me. It was at his quaestorship in Spain in which this actually occurred. For my but, audience, can you explain what you mean by a quaestorship and a praetorship and such? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what, what all these positions were. A quaestorship, I, I don't, I don't want to take too much a crack at this, so I'm not going to be um, real precise. I can mm -hmm. just say that a praetorship was a much better position than a quaestorship. So you, you'd become a quaestor before you would become a praetor, just like you, you might become a lieutenant governor before you became a governor, or you, you might be a congressman before you become a senator, or a state senator before you become, uh, you know... A, U.S. senator. Yeah, U.S. senator. So a quaestor was a position below a praetor, and... So what what happens is uh, let's see if, uh, okay so it really happened at at Caesar's quaestor while while he was quaestor in Spain but if i remember correctly Plutarch moves it forward about 8 years um either moves it forward maybe he moves it back i i forgot which but he does it to make a point. Um, yes, he moves it forward, okay? Because he wants to, it, it would have really happened at his quaestorship because that would have been the time in which Caesar was the same age of Alexander when Alexander had conquered the world pretty much. But he moves it forward eight years to his praetorship just be, shortly before he would have crossed the Rubicon because he wants to show that Caesar was really motivated to have power, even utter power over the state. So he does it to highlight something within his uh, his ambitions within his character. Were those ambitions actually there? Absolutely. And Plutarch displaces the account from his quaestorship in Spain and moves it forward eight years to his praetorship in Spain in order to highlight that point. Um, so his readers can understand it more clearly. Mm -hmm. And now uh, this helps you think with your theory about what happened with the crucifixion in John's Gospel, right? Yeah, I do think something similar is going on there. So does Craig Keener, and so does a lot of others. Uh, so do a lot of other scholars. Mm -hmm. um, 
So we think that it's very possible that what John has done, because Mark is crystal clear that, uh, and so is Matthew, and so is Luke, they're crystal clear that the Last Supper occurs on Passover, whereas John, we really don't get any clear sense that John is trying to communicate that it's a Passover meal. In fact, it seems just the opposite. Because when you look at chapter 13, the very beginning, it says, now it was before the Passover meal. And Jesus asked his disciples to go um, and, and get a, a dinner prepared for him. But he's clear that it's before a Passover meal. And then you don't have anything with the Eucharist stuff, the passing around the cup or you know, the sayings like, this is my body, which is broken for you. That does not happen. So it's almost like he's trying to paint a picture of this as though it is not a Passover meal. Mm-hmm. And then Mark says that Jesus was delivered over by Pilate to be crucified at 9 a.m., whereas John has it just after noon. So Keener proposes, and others have proposed, that what John is doing here is displacing the time of Jesus' crucifixion, the day and time, to highlight that Jesus is our Passover lamb, and the burnt offerings for our sins. Because the Mishnah says that um, when the Passover falls on the Sabbath, the uh, typical burnt offerings, which would be offered at about 2.30, are to be moved back two hours to accommodate the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. So if you move it back two hours, that puts it around 12.30 or just after noon. Um, And then if when Jesus is delivered to Pilate, it says they don't go into the Praetorian with them so that um, they wouldn't be defiled and could celebrate the Passover that evening. So here you've got, again, John is seeming to suggest that the Passover would be celebrated the day on which Jesus was crucified, um, suggesting again, uh, doing like what he did, what Plutarch did with Caesar, you have John doing it with Jesus in order to highlight that Jesus is our Passover lamb, a message that Paul makes decades earlier in his letters. So it's not that he's making up these things or distorting truth. He's highlighting the truth by altering the details a little bit. And again, other historians do this. Plutarch does it. Tacitus does it with the trial of Piso. Um, And you've got Sallust who does it with uh, Catiline's, uh, two of Catiline's addresses to the Senate, um, or one to the Senate and one to Cato. So you have some of the finest historians with, again, Tacitus and Sallust, that they do this. So it shouldn't really be any problem when we see John doing it as well. And we see do it elsewhere, too. You know, Mark places the, the woman anointing Jesus two days before Passover, Mark and Matthew do. Whereas John places it six days prior to the Passover, and there's reasons why he would have done this as well. Now, what about some people out there who say, well, you know, altering the details and such, doesn't this present a challenge to inerrancy? It does present a challenge to wooden forms, very strict forms of inerrancy, I suppose. Um, but we don't, we're not obligated to hold a strict form of inerrancy. Mm-hmm. Um so we can see the gospel authors that they do change some things at times. They change wording. So, for example, at Jesus' baptism, 
the voice out of heaven and some accounts say, this is my beloved son. Um, and, and Matthew says, this is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. Whereas in Mark and in Luke, it says, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Well, the difference is, was this, the voice from heaven speaking directly to Jesus or to the people? It, you know, it's not both. Mm-hmm. So um, unless you want to try to harmonize this and say, well, the voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then it said, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that just seems to be a bit of a stretch. And I, in that case, it means one of the writers these is also leaving out some information. Right. So I wouldn't say that. I mean, my my what I suspect is that Matthew has changed it. Um, as he does other places. And I think that he's changed it in order to highlight that God is testifying to everyone that Jesus is his son. Mm -hmm. I think that's what he's doing there. Um, Now, I might be wrong. Maybe Mark and Luke, Mark followed by Luke, changed it from this to you so that God is addressing Jesus directly. I don't, it makes more sense the other way to me, but one of them changed it, it appears. Um, and so there is this flexibility that is going on. This is not an error. This is a compositional device. This is a way of writing. This is the flexibility that is allowed within writing ancient history and biography. And, you know, if a person wants to say they have problems with this, you know, it's, it's going to be typically a, um, a Christian, an evangelical, who has a very strict form of inerrancy who might struggle with this. Look, I understand. I, I've been there. I, I've had, you know, I started to see in these things, I started struggling with them. But you know what? I, I came to the conclusion in thinking, Nick, that if I truly, truly have a high view of Scripture, then I will accept Scripture as God has given it to me and bow to its authority. Mm-hmm. I will accept it as it has been given to me and bow to its authority rather than trying to force it into a mold of how I think God should have given it to me. Mm-hmm. And if I fail to do this, then I might claim to have a high view of Scripture, but in reality what I really have is a high view of my view of Scripture. Ooh, that's good. And that is that is nothing more than misguided piety. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I've got my guest, Mike Lacona, on talking about his book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? But if you're listening next week, we're going to talk about Islam some. We're going to talk about answering Islam. And if we're answering Islam, we need someone from answering Islam. So Sam Shamoon is going to be my guest next week. We're going to be talking about Islam and how we can address our Muslim friends and those we meet. But for now, let's get back to Mike talking about why are there differences in the Gospels. Now, I think some readers might say who are Christians, especially looking to say, where... The Plutarch stuff, that's really interesting, but what I want to get to is the stuff about the Gospels and what's in the Gospels, because that's one that, one that, you know, is more relevant to my life and such. Now, one thing that we could give you a chance to clear the record on here some is there was a, some controversy when you're on my friend Jonathan McLatchy's program about the feeding of the 5,000, which was jumped on immediately by some fans who were saying about saying that Mark was 
confused. Now, it, it's my thing that you probably misspoke, just like Bill Craig once got up and ardently defended that 2 plus 2 equals 5, without obviously realizing that uh, he was getting his words confused. So, what is your stance on the feeding of the 5,000? I think it occurred. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, no, there's no doubt about that. The, the, the challenge comes with what happened afterward. Mm. So, um, you know, you look and, it, and Mark says, Mark doesn't tell us where the feeding occurred, but he says immediately after the feeding, Jesus t- instructed his disciples to get into the boat and to cross over to the other side to Bethsaida. Now, I, I want you to imagine the Sea of Galilee as we look at this. Mm-hmm. The Sea of Galilee <laughs> kind of looks like the continent of Africa, okay? okay. So we're, or think of it as the continent of Africa or as a clock. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at the north end. So the Bethsaida would be at about 1 o'clock. Okay. So, and Capernaum is probably around 11 o'clock. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, all right. So now here's what happened. Mark doesn't tell us where the feeding occurred, but he says he instructed them afterward to get into the boat and to cross over to Bethsaida. So they're to go over to the other side of the lake to Bethsaida, um, to one o'clock. Now, then you've got Luke. He doesn't tell us where, uh, actually he doesn't even talk about the crossing, but he told it, he tells us that the feeding of the 5,000 occurred at Bethsaida. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, then John, uh, Matthew and John are pretty much like they're compatible with Luke. So Luke doesn't talk about the lake crossing afterward, but he says that it occur- the feeding occurred at or near Bethsaida. So maybe it occurred. So you got Luke says it occurred there. John says, or Matthew tells him that they're to cross over afterward to the other side to Gennesaret. So that's right below Capernaum. So think of that as at 10 o'clock. Capernaum's at 11, maybe a little below that. But let's say Capernaum's at 11 and Gennesaret is at 10. So he tells Matthew tells him to go across to Gennesaret at 10 Mm -hmm. o'clock. John tells him to cross over to Capernaum, which is at 11 o'clock. And um, Luke doesn't say where, but he tells that it's at or near Bethsaida is where the the, uh, feeding occurred. So that would make perfect sense with what Matthew and and John have. But Mark says after to cross over to go to Bethsaida. Well, how could they do that if they're already near there? And some have said, well, maybe what happened is they started to go and uh, to Bethsaida and they got blown off course and ended up in Capernaum. The -hmm. problem with that is that John says he told them to go to Capernaum and then they landed where they had intended. So they weren't intending to go to Bethsaida. They were intending to go to Capernaum. So you got this this difficulty here. And, you know, I, I deal with it in my book. Um, and you know, I look at a number of options in the book. One of the options is that Mark got it confused. Um, Mark was not from the area. He heard from Peter. 
Maybe he's reporting this after Peter had died. We don't know when he was reported. Maybe he just forgot. He was not re, um, familiar with the landscaping around there. And he, and he was just confused. All right. That's not a big deal. My wife and I, shortly after we were married, we stayed at the same hotel, a fancy hotel. We went to a conference. And after the, the, uh, the meeting and dinner that night, we came back to the room. I saw that the lights were on. The radio was playing. They pulled down the sheets and put mints on our pillows. Now, we were hicks at the time. We didn't know that this is what they do at a really nice hotel. And so I called the front desk and I said, someone's been in our room. <laughs> and, and the people at the front desk must have really been laughing after that. Well, why do you think someone was there? Well, they pulled the sheets down and put mints on our pillows and turned the lights on and the radio on. The cleanest robbers I ever were. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, now Debbie and I both remember that event. The difference is that she thinks that that event occurred in Richmond, Virginia, and I said it was in Dallas, Texas. Now, we were both there. Um, we disagree on where the event occurred. One of us got it wrong, probably her. Um, but uh, <laughs> one of us got it wrong. And but it doesn't mean that we're, you know, we're off our rocker with this. The event did occur. It's just one of us was confused with where the event occurred. And it's not a big deal. So I looked at that as one of the options. Well, when I was asked about on McClatchy's program, um, if there were any differences in the Gospels that I found difficult to resolve by compositional devices, I said, yeah, there's, here's, here's one right now. You know, the location of the feeding of the 5,000 or where they were instructed to go afterward. What do you think happened? And I said, well, it's possible Mark was confused. Um, that was the first thing that came to my mind. Now, there are other options that I think could have happened, but that's the one that came to my mind, and I, I said it. And, you know, so there were a number of people who very, very strongly committed to biblical inerrancy in a very strict sense, and they took great issue with it. Um, and, and, you know, it came out against me on it. So. Mm -hmm. You know, I wrote an article clarifying the position. I showed where the position that some others were positing were wrong, um, or at least they're not just a, they're not as simple. This is not a simple matter. Mm -hmm. It is not easily resolved, and I don't think there are any clear answers. I'm not saying that Mark was confused. Now, I'm saying I don't know what happened. Um, I, I think we, if we're going to be honest historians about it, we have to leave that open as an option. And they'd say, well, you can't because the Bible's inerrant. Well, how do you know that the Bible's inerrant? This could be the one thing that could show that it's not, at mm. least in a strict sense. You know, yeah. if the Bible's inerrant and in all that it teaches, well, then it could still be inerrant because that's just a peripheral detail. It's insignificant. Now, I think it's also worth pointing out that I think it was around Labor Day that a bunch of us got together and it was you, me, Gary Habermas, William and Craig, Nabil Qureshi. And we all sat together, and we were discussing many different things. And one of the things that came up was this problem. And we probably spent 20, 30 minutes batting around ideas, discussing what conclusions that we could come to. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. But, yeah, now that you say that, I do recall that. Mm -hmm. You know, some of, this, some of it rests on how you interpret certain prepositions or prepositional phrases. Um 
you know, my contention is that, yeah, there be certain ways that you could, but, uh, you know, you could you could interpret the pros in such a way to eliminate the tension. But, you know, you really have to strain in order to do that. You would have to take it in an unnatural sense in order to make it happen that way. So I'm for looking at you. I want to do what F.F. Bruce suggested, that you read the Gospels, you read the Bible, and you develop your theology from it, rather than getting a theology that's already freeze-dried, pre-packaged, denominationally approved, put on the shelf for you to consume without question. Mm -hmm. No, I would rather wrestle through this stuff and come up with, you know, what I think is what probably happened and make a decision for myself that because this is i think this stuff is important yeah and interesting while we were discussing it we ended up having a discussion about what really happened with one of nabiro's stories and we couldn't agree on that and you and gary and he were all there and none of you could agree on what happened until the end you know we were able to harmonize that uh so yeah that story was um you know, what happened after my debate with Shabir Ali um, and Nabil, I think he wrote about it in somewhere. Uh, Seeking talk- Allah, finding Jesus. Okay. And he says, yeah, he comes out and and he said, uh, he, he said, um, you know, all you Christians have over this is uh, over Islam is the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> and. <laughs> Gary said, did you hear yourself? You know, and that's how Gary remembered it. That's yep. how Neil remembered it. But that's not how I remembered it. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, you know, I know my memory is not perfect, but the way I recall it is David and Gary were wor- walking ahead of Nabil and I. And Nabil, as a Muslim in that time, said to me, I, I think you won this debate against Shabir. And, you know, I'm, I'm really giving this some thought, but the only thing I really at this point think that Christianity has over Islam is the resurrection. And I said, Nabil, did you hear yourself on this? The only thing we have is the resurrection? I mean, if we've got the resurrection, the game is over. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, I guess you're right. And, I, and then I said, Gary, you, got, you and David, you got to hear this. Nabil, tell them what you just told me. And um, that would make sense of my story, of their story. And at that point, Nabil said, yes, now I remember that is the way it happened. So you could have these stories that that showed. You could have some stories that they appeared a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. They appeared in conflict, but they're not actually in conflict. It's just because they weren't exhaustive. Yeah. And I think a principle we could keep in mind when it comes to inerrancy with this is we can be open and admit, yeah, there are some things that are difficult to resolve. It doesn't mean we just throw out inerrancy immediately because if you're studying in another field, like, say, science, and you come across two things that seem to be in conflict with each other, you don't throw out the scientific method at that point and say, well, science has been defeated, no need to go on, you can look at and it's okay to say, this is a hard problem, but maybe sometime in the future we will get a clear resolution where I find more knowledge than that we didn't know before and that'll help answer the problem. Um, that's correct, Nick. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad you brought up the thing about the story of Nabil. I had forgotten about that over uh, Labor Day. But that is a really good illustration, one that, you know, in, in which I personally experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, where you had this, these two apparently con- conflicting stories, but they're not. 
And I'll be honest with you, you know, I've, I've studied the Gospels for nearly eight years with in mind at the forefront, looking for contradictions between them deliberately. And, you know, I can say that even though I think that there are only a handful, not even a whole handful, you know, but enough that you could count on a single hand on your fingers of examples where there are tensions that are possible contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think most of them can easily be of. I made over uh, listed over fifty pages that I found of differences in the Gospels, and all but a handful of them, I think, are easily resolved by compositional devices or uh, typical theological redaction and and sensible harmonization without trying to, to strain. I think with the less than a handful that remain of potential candidates for erroneous contradictions, they're all in the peripheral details. They don't really change any doctrine or anything like that. So it's not a big deal. And, you know, we could say, well, yeah, maybe there is a way that had we know, known the full story, like the thing with Nabil and what he said to us, it would make perfect sense. And that's possible. Yeah. I have to admit that the same thing goes on with Plutarch, that when I look at a lot of the differences, there are some, and I say, most of them I look at, and I say the overwhelming majority is because, not he's a a sloppy historian, but because he's using compositional devices that were part and parcel of of writing literature of of that day. Mm -hmm. Are there some things that he got wrong? It's possible. Like I I can think of uh, when uh, Pompey was killed by the Egyptians um, in the Plutarch's life of Antony. It said that Antony bought the home of Pompey when it was auctioned off due to it being on the prescriptions. Whereas I think it was the life of Pompey or another biography that said a guy named Corfinius bought it. Corfinius? What was it, Corfinius or was it Antony who bought it? And some have said, well, Plutarch just got it wrong here. Or that there was a uh, scribal error. Well, how do you get a scribal error where you change it from Antony to Corfinius? Right. <laughs> you know? So uh, what happened here? I don't know. You can posit a number of things. You could say that Plutarch got it wrong. You you could harmonize it by saying, well, maybe um, Antony purchased it, but he actually had Corfinius pay for it. Um, uh, Corfinius was his agent who made the transaction. Yeah. I don't know. You can. What I'm saying is, you can kind of try different things to. You can do this with all of Plutarch's difficulties to get out of an error. At the end of the day, it becomes really difficult to say for certain whether there's an error or an actual contradiction. And so, to an extent, I I almost think that this whole conversation, when you're fighting over these minor peripheral details, isn't really that important. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone before we go on that uh, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is listener-supported. Now, the way I normally go about telling you how you can support us, I'm going to do it a little bit differently due to the guests that I have on here. Um, one way you can support us is by going to the Amazon store that you can access for your internet and uh, purchase some ebooks that I've either written, well, the one that I've written, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian, and ones that I've co-written, such as Relevant to Today, Defining Inerrancy, or God and Natural Disasters, 
or groundless. And also, guys, um, women like jewelry out there. If you want to get in good terms with the lady in your life, buy some jewelry. And for that, you can go to the uh, premier store from our site. And my friend Lena Cluster handles that. And if you want some more information on how to do this, you can get in touch with me and I'll help you out if you have a problem. But you make your purchase and let her know, let me know. And whatever you purchase, 25% of what you purchase goes towards deeper waters. So you can get something to make up for that screw-up that you've recently done in the past with that lady in your life. Or you can get something to be future insurance for that screw-up that I know you're going to make with that lady in your life. And if you're listening to this show and you like it, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review. I really love to see them. Now, I, I could tell you how to donate to me personally, but that's done through Mike's ministry, and I'm sure that's where he wants you to donate for him. So, Mike, could you tell people how to donate to your ministry and then how to donate to my ministry? Sure. Uh, they can just go to risenjesus.com. Uh, there's a tab on there for donate, or you can just type in risenjesus.com forward slash donate. It's a secured page, and you can choose a one-time gift or a monthly gift of any amount. You can stop at any time you want. Um, but, yeah, we appreciate any kind of donations. What you would do if you wanted to go toward Nick's ministry is you would then, after signing up for it or, or making the donation using a credit card, um, you would— um, uh, send us an email and tell us that you know you just started a monthly donation or you just made a certain donation and you are thinking of this in terms of Nick's ministry. Mm-hmm. And we'll make sure it goes in that way. But that uh, certainly helps, and um, all donations are tax deductible. It's allowable by law. Here mm-hmm. in the- so, um, yeah, it's something to keep in mind. Yeah. And your wife is a financial guru, so she knows how to handle it all very well. Oh, yes. Now, like when you were talking about the issue with Anthony and I think Corfinius was the name you gave, what did come in my mind immediately was one of the accounts in the Gospels about Jesus. He goes to Capernaum, I think it is, and he's told, hey, there is a centurion here, but he's a really great guy, and he, he built, our, built our synagogue. He's got a servant who needs to be healed. Can you come and do it? And so Matthew and Luke both record us, but they both say something very different. And one of them, the elders come out, the people come out to meet him and say, hey, he says he's not worthy and such. And the other one, the centurion himself says he is said to have come out and met them. That's correct. Uh, Luke is the one that has the Jewish elders come out, and then, and then even then— um, after they ask Jesus to do it on, you know, for the centurion, he says, let's go. And um, when the centurion finds out about it back at his home, he sends some friends out and tells Jesus. The centurion says he's unworthy to have you come under his roof. Just say the word and his servants will be healed. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus praises the centurion without ever seeing him and heals his servant from a distance. But Matthew simplifies and transfers uh, by just having the centurion come out and transfers it from the lips of the Jewish elders directly to the centurion, because it was his words anyway to begin with. Um, 
So, and, and he goes out and meets himself. Well, we find something very similar with this simplification and transferal in Plutarch. Mm-hmm. So, um, 52 BC was a year in which the Roman government was in, and, and state was in such chaos that it almost collapsed under such corruption and riots and violence. So they made a drastic step and made Pompey the sole consul of Rome. Typically in the Roman Republic, you would have two consuls serving together. So think about in our political system with the U.S., instead of a Congress and a Senate, you would just have a Senate. And instead of the president, you would have two presidents. All right. And mm-hmm. they would serve together. And their term was for one year. And then afterward, they'd step down and they could not serve again for another 10 years. So you would mm-hmm. have two consuls every year. Um, so this one year, and that was so that no absolute power belonged to any man. So this this year, because at 52 BC, because Rome was in such a terrible state, they said Pompey can be our sole consul this year. And so he was, he was approved, became sole consul, and he had started instituting laws to curb all the corruption. One of those laws was that if you had someone, say someone was on trial and they were your friend, you could come, not come in and give a great speech on how good this person was because it would have nothing to do with whether that person was innocent or guilty of the crime with which they're being charged. Mm-hmm. So Pompey made this good law, but then he proceeded to break it himself when his friend Plancus was on trial. Um, now, when you read about it in the life of uh, Plutarch's life of Cato, Eutychensis, Uta, You've got um, you, you have Pompey, who's outside the city at the time. He sends an emissary in to read the. Uh, he writes he writes a good speech about his friend, and he sends an emissary in to read it at the trial. But when Plutarch reports the same event in his life of Pompey, he has Pompey himself come in and read it. Now, we know from other historians that Pompey actually sent an emissary in to read it, but Plutarch simplifies and just has Pompey read it, narrates it that way, because they were Pompey's words anyway. And this is what we see Matthew doing with the centurion. Yes. So it's just simplification. Yeah, I think we can compare to, for instance, in John 19, where it says, When Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Really? Pilate went and did the flogging himself personally? No, it means he was the agent behind it. And we could say the same thing with the centurion case. Yes. Yep. Now, something that I do when I go to bed at night, and I really recommend this to people, is uh, I read a little short section of a Bible, just a little pericope, as we're called, and then just go to bed and just ask myself questions about it as I'm going to sleep. Now, last night... I read the story of in Matthew of Jairus' daughter being healed and the woman with a with a blood flow problem. And the accounts are very different. In Matthew, Jairus shows up and says, Hey, she's dead. Come help about yes. his daughter. Mark and Luke don't give you that. And the accounts of a hemorrhaging woman are quite different. In one account, Jesus just asked, who touched me? And the other one, he just says to me, daughter, your faith is yours. You go in peace. Right. I mean, there's there's definitely, and it's, I think it's Matthew who's doing the changing here. Uh, Matthew compresses the account. 
So rather than having like Mark and Luke say where, you know, you have Jairus come to Jesus and say, my daughter is about to die, please come and heal her. And then on the way after they, Jesus heals the, the woman with the bleeding, the hemorrhaging problems, then some people from Jairus's home come out and say, don't trouble the teacher any longer. Your, your daughter has just died. You know, but like you said, Nick, in Matthew's account, she, uh, Jairus comes and says, my daughter has just died. You know, there's mm-hmm. no, she's about to, and then you don't have the people from the house coming out. Matthew just compresses and simplifies the account and has her already dead. He does this for purposes of economy, and he's just not so concerned with precise details here. Mm-hmm. I think also if we were talking about something like chronology, one of the cases that would lead us to say that if we have to go by a strict chronology, we have a real problem, would be the temptation of Jesus in Matthew and Luke. The second and third one are rearranged in the Gospels. Yes, you do. Uh, so that's that's correct. Matthew and Luke have opposite orders of those. And this is something I, I call synthetic chronological placement. It is something that we find in Sallust. It's something we find in Tacitus. We find it the, and we find it in Plutarch. We find it in the Gospels. We find it with the, the timing of when the woman anoints Jesus. Uh, I mentioned this earlier. So Mark and Matthew have it uh, two days before Passover. John has it six days before Passover. Um, say, well, did one of them get it wrong? Well, I don't think so. I think John does it intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the reason being, as I read the um, Lucian's book from the middle of the second century, How to Write History, he talks about how a good historian is going to link together stories in a narrative like links in a chain to make them move along smoothly and in an artistic manner rather than leave them disjointed. Well, what what happens here, you, I think it's uh, John chapter 11, in which Jesus, it's John chapter 10 or 11, where Jesus heals Lazarus. It's 11. 11. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, he mentions Mary and Martha, the the sisters of Lazarus there in that chapter for the first time. And so I think what John does is he's thinking, you know what, I've got another story here about Mary. In fact, he introduces Lazarus by saying, yeah, this is his sister was Mary who anointed his feet with, with uh, perfume, wiped it with her hair. So he's thinking, you know what, I have another story about Mary whom I've just mentioned. Um, and so he displaces it from two days before Passover, and he transplants it six days before Passover so that he can link these stories together like a chain. And something I forgot that Lucian does mention, not only as a chain, but so that there's overlapping material. So in this case, Mary is is the overlapping material between the two. It makes perfect sense to me in that way. Um, so they're not so given to this strict chronology. We see we see uh, John may have done it also with the overturning of the, ta- the temple tables, whereas John places it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke place it at the end of Jesus' ministry, although they don't have it on the same day. Some put it on Palm Sunday. Some put it on Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Um, you've got that that's going on. There's no strict chronology here. You go to where at the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the synoptics, you have Mark and Luke have Jesus come to Capernaum. He speaks in the synagogue. 
He heals Peter's mother-in-law afterward. And then that evening, all three of them, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And that evening, he um, people crowds come around and he heals some sick and he casts demons out of some. Now, from there, Mark and Luke go one way and Matthew goes another. So Mark and Luke say the next morning, Jesus got up while it was still dark and he went out to pray. And his disciples came to him and said, hey, everybody's looking for you. Uh, The people here in the village, Capernaum, are looking for you. And uh, Jesus says, look, we're not going to stay here. We're going to leave and go preach throughout the, the other towns here in Galilee and Judea. Well, when you read it in Matthew's gospel, that that night when Jesus is healing the sick and the demon possessed, he sees the crowds and he commands his disciples to get into the boat and cross over to the other side. And so they do. And that's when the storm occurs and Jesus calms the wind and the wave. They have to wake him up and he calms the wind and the waves. Well, in Mark and Luke, that doesn't happen for a few weeks later. So we can see this different chronology. It's a it's a firm chronology, an explicit chronology. They cross the lake that night, whereas in Mark and Luke, they don't cross the lake that night. It's an explicit chronology, and I think Matthew is the one that changes it there because he just has some other things in mind. Sometimes you can put these explicit chronological markers in place to keep the story moving smoothly, like links in a chain. Um, they're, they're, it's just not important to them. Well, it happened on this particular day. So, and again, that's evident by, you know, some placing the overturning of the temple ta- tables on Palm Sunday, others the day after. Um, they're just not so concerned with, with being precise with some of these things, but we get a good gist of what occurred. Now, I'd like to give people their preview of some that's coming up. Uh, we are going to be having a guest on in a couple of weeks who wrote something on the anointing ring. He's got his own way of looking at it. So if you're interested in that, then uh, tune in two weeks. Uh, one of your colleagues, in fact, Michael Chung, is going to be on here. Oh, about good. His book, Jesus, the Last King of Israel, and he has an appendix on that very topic. I really like Michael. He's a, he's a great guy. So <laughs> you'll enjoy that. Glad you got him on. Yeah, and, and I made sure to ask if he was giving you a hard time at HBU, and if so, to please keep it up. <laughs> no, he's not. I don't think he's at HBU now. I think he's teaching Fuller, but uh, yes, yes. Michael's a great guy. He really is. Now, I think one place we're going to have to go, definitely, since this is your specialty, we're talking about, uh, about differences in the Gospels, and we want to make sure we, we get to this one, is the resurrection narratives. I mean, how many of us can pitch right now Bart Ehrman going on about this. How many women went there? Depends on which gospel you read. How many, what did they see? Depends on which gospel you read. <laughs> Where would the appearances take place? Depends on which gospel you read. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. There are, there are a lot of differences in the resurrection narratives, and I think almost all of them are quite easily resolved. Not all of them, but almost all of them. Mm-hmm. Now, what would you say about someone who says, you know, I don't know which women went to the tomb. I don't know where the appearances took place. I, and it seems like if this is the most important fact of history, surely the people should have gotten their facts straight about it. And if they can't even get this right, why should I believe it? Well, I'd say I don't think it's a matter of them not getting their facts straight. Um, you know, I, I, when I tackled this thing with the resurrection narratives, I, 
you know, as, as you know, Nick, I've spent a lot of time with mm-hmm. the resurrection over the years. Um, and so, I, you know, I when I was doing my doctoral research, I I read through the uh, burial and resurrection narratives 35 times in Greek just because I wanted to be so familiar with them um, and notice the differences, especially. So, you know, I was I thought I was pretty familiar with these that I was going to get into the text and. Um, you know, within a day or two, was going to be able to identify all these and write the section out. Three weeks later, I was still working on it. And, you know, it's like, I don't know how many pages I devote to it in the book, but it's, you know, it's quite a lot compared to other pericopes. Um, so there are a lot of differences. I think that, uh, honestly, almost all of them can be accounted for and should be accounted for by compositional devices like literary spotlighting and compression, things like this, that some of these just seem obvious. There are maybe two of them, I think, that I can recall, two or three, but I think two, which I find really difficult to um, explain using compositional devices. You can try to harmonize them, I suppose, and I've seen some people trying to do this, um, I kind of hesitate in, with some harmonization efforts, and I think those go too far. Um, I don't know what's going on. I have the suspicion that what is going on is um, there is some sort of a compositional device, but I can't put my hand on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to say that to punt because um, – you know, I'd be willing to see, say, as I was with the, um, you know, the location of the feeding of the 5,000 and what happened afterward. I'm willing to look at that and say, you know, I, I think it's possible. It's possible. We have to consider the possibility that Mark was confused. I don't think that that is what's going on in the resurrection narratives with the two or three minor things that I have a difficult explaining. They're mm-hmm. in peripheral details. They're not in major details. So um, they're in the minor details, and I don't know what's going on, but I do have a suspicion that that one of them changed it, and it was intentional. It was intentional. I just don't know why. What's most important is all the things that they do agree on, in fact. Exactly. Now, I, I think another area that we often see problems in the Gospels, and I think this is our modern reading, is that... You point to this with the baptism of Jesus. I'm going to go to another place for great confession of faith. And what did Peter say? You are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Son of God. What did he say? We have different things in the Gospels. Yeah. Or, yeah, that plus um, the um, what was written on the plaque mm-hmm. above Jesus' head on the cross. That differs slightly. So, um you know, obviously, these guys are recalling they're not so concerned with precision as modern historians are, or at least as some modern historians are. Um, they were willing to paraphrase. They were more interested in getting the gist of what was going on, an accurate gist. But they didn't feel like they had to I mean, you can see that there's no conviction between them that they had to get every detail precisely as what happened. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to be open to the possibility that they had a general idea. The eyewitnesses had a general idea. 
and they just gave a kind of a sketch at what happened. And so they, the authors just filled in the blanks with some of these things to, you know, make the story move along more smoothly. Like, for example, um, the uh, Peter denying Jesus three times in the mm-hmm. court of the high priest. The, the main difference there comes in the second denial. In Mark's gospel, Mark says that the same servant woman came up to Peter and said, I, I surely I've seen you with him. Whereas Matthew says a different servant woman came up and said it. Luke's gospel says a male servant came up and said it to him. Whereas John's gospel says a number of people came up and said it to him. Now, which mm-hmm. one was it? Um, well, maybe someone would say, well, all of them are correct. All of them. It was the same one, a different one, and a male. And, and John has it more correct with all of them. And they're just focusing on different people, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That doesn't seem what appears to happen elsewhere in their gospels. So I wouldn't rule that out. But I think a more plausible explanation is that Peter denied Jesus three times. They didn't know precisely who came up and and challenged him the second time. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John simply crafted the, you know, filled in the blanks and put someone there. Now, is that an error? No. Is that something that would have been allowed in ancient history writing? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, I don't have any problems with that, something like that. Yeah, I think part of the problem with the words being said also is that we often assume that you have to give a word for word account and you don't and a lot of things would be shortened greatly I mean, if you get up and give Jesus a sermon on a mount you could be done with it in about 10 or 15 minutes and how many of us wouldn't love it if a sermon's on Sunday could go 10 or 15 minutes longer who wouldn't love to give a sermon like Peter's where you speak, speak like you do in Acts 2 for about two minutes, and lo and behold, you get 3,000 converts that day. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And, and most scholars would say that these sermons by Peter, Paul, and Jesus were summaries, uh, <laughs> and based on stuff that Jesus would have been preaching on. I mean, even just can compare the Sermon on the Mount as taught uh, or as reported by Matthew and reported by Luke. These are seem to be the same sermon because of what comes immediately after it, you mm-hmm. know? him healing someone and then going into Capernaum, where he heals Peter's mother-in-law. So um, it appears to be the same sermon, but it's located on different parts of the mountain. In one, he's talking to the apostles or his disciples. The other, he's talking to a wider group. Um, But look at how he tells the Beatitudes. They're mentioned a little bit differently. So, yeah, uh, Jesus would no doubt have altered the way he spoke on different occasions. Mm. but. Uh, would we say that because Luke reports it one way, that Jesus may have spoken it at a time, and Matthew reports it a uh, way Jesus may have spoken at a different time, and maybe combines Jesus' teachings that he spoke on different occasions and includes them in the Sermon on the Mount? That's a literary technique. Uh, you know, it, it's it's not an error. It's not wrong. But it's not necessarily something we would do in history writing today. And I I think the thing, the common theme that we just need to remember is we're reading the Gospels with these differences, is we have to read them and love them, accept them, and bow to their authority as God has given them to us, um, Mm -hmm. and try to read them through the lenses of a first century person rather than through a 21st century person. It solves a lot of confusion.
Yeah, I take it you don't really have much credence for the idea that's been given, such as that Jesus spoke the same sermon twice. He just used different words each time. No, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, no, I wouldn't say you mean yes. twice on the same occasion. Yes, that, that that has been suggested. No, that's that's what I've referred to as you know, subjecting the text to hermeneutical waterboarding until they tell you what you want to hear. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's something to keep in mind. I mean, you and I both do speaking vaguely, and every time we speak, if you speak on the resurrection somewhere, then go to another church to speak on the resurrection next week, you're not going to give a completely different talk. You're going to use the same talk, most likely, but you're going to have different emphases, different ways you're phrased in concession. I'll do the exact same thing. If I've got a favorite message I give, I'll give the, the same message to different churches, but I'm not going to hear the exact same words. That's true. So if you had someone like uh, that, that's exactly right. No. So if someone heard you in one church say it, and they heard you in another church, someone heard you in another church and they reported it, um, yeah. you know, it, it might be a little different. It doesn't matter, you know, as long as they're reporting the spirit of your message, yeah. what was behind your message, that's what's important. Yeah. If it, correct. It'd be a bit odd for us to think that Jesus goes around teaching his disciples all these things, and he teaches them only one time. You say, okay, Jesus, what was that thing you said again about such, such, oh, I'm sorry, you missed it the first time. You, you don't have to ask someone else, I mean, Jesus, as an itinerant speaker, would no doubt have told the parables many, many times to different audiences. That's correct. And there is, Nick, there is a benefit behind that, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mentioned this in my lecture on the historical reliability of the Gospels, that because Jesus was an itinerant speaker, he's not having to come up with a new sermon uh, for every town he goes into. So he's probably using a dozen to 20 different sermons throughout his ministry. And mm -hmm. so his disciples who are traveling with him for one and a half to three years are hearing the same thing hundreds of times, mm -hmm. hundreds of times. Yeah. Um, and then they go out after his resurrection and they preach the same message thousands of times until they're killed decades later. Mm -hmm. um, and so they hear it hundreds of times. They preach it thousands of times. And then they're relaying this to people who are reporting the Gospels. Now, that gives us a lot more confidence as historians that what we read about Jesus' teachings, how his teachings were remembered and recalled, that gives us a lot more confidence that these recollections of Jesus' teachings that we find in the Gospels are what he actually preached, a lot more confidence than we, what we have for Patrick Henry's famous liberty or death speech, right. for which— um, we only have two. It's based on only two eyewitnesses, both of whom are reporting 41 years later. They did not take notes. They're reporting it just from the recollection. Most of it comes from one person. There are no notes from Patrick Henry's speech. Um, and, and Patrick Henry was dead at the time. So that is certainly a speech that has a basic outline of what was said. And it has been reconstructed with, you know— totally reconstructed with a lot of crafting, invention, fabrication involved in order to get to that speech. Does it? Does what we have communicate the spirit of what was said on that occasion? I think so. I think most historians would say yes. But 
not anywhere near in a precise sense. When we come to Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, you know, we can be far more certain that you have a, a, a far greater precision. It's closer to what Jesus actually said than what we have with Patrick Henry's speeches. Mm-hmm. So, for as we're getting close to the time of wrapping up and such, so for the average reader of the Gospels who, who's out there and going through and seeing differences, what are some pieces of, of advice you'd give them to uh, ways to look at differences in the Gospels? Well, I, I, you know, I don't mean this to be self-serving, but I'd say read my book. Mm-hmm. Read my book on the subject because, you know, you get a little bit of a, I mean, it's not even that expensive. I, look, you, a, a press like Oxford University Press, I, I don't make much off of this. Academic publishers do not pay well. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so saying this to, to, to cushion my bank account in any sense, it's, it's not going to make much difference at all. I mean, you can purchase it on Kindle for $14.39, I think it is. It's pretty cheap. We're having that at the end. Um, what's that? Right, I'll be telling at the end how much it is. So, but that'll give you expose you to some ideas like that. Um, You may want to get a synopsis of the four gospels. Um, It's especially helpful if you can read it in Greek because you sometimes you'll have an English word that's the same word um, translated for two different Greek words. So you can see more of the differences in Greek, um, especially the different grammar that's used and how they paraphrase, where you may not pick that up so much in English. But most people aren't going to be able to read Greek. So the next best thing would be to get a synopsis of the four Gospels in, in English. And then what it does is it has the same story line by line in parallel columns, and you can compare how the, the, same, how the four Gospels told the same stories differently and how they told them in a similar way. You'll be surprised when you see word-for-word comparisons, how similar they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll also see some differences. Uh, it's that that when you start looking at these side-by-side, side, that you'll see things like, you are my son, or this is my son, you know, differences like that. So you can see these differences yourself, and then as you go through story-by-story, line-by-line, you start to notice patterns, and and read it, not just once, read it two times, five times, ten mm-hmm. times through. You want to spend the time in the Gospels anyway. Yeah. So why not just look at them side by side where you can do this? Don't just read the Gospel of Matthew and then, then read Gospel of Luke, Mark and then Luke and then John. Read them side by side and compare them. And as you've done this maybe five times, you'll start to notice patterns and things will start you'll start seeing things that you didn't see before because you become more familiarized with it. And then I, I would say that if if uh, you're a strict inerrantist, I'm more of a flexible inerrantist, but if you're a strict inerrantist, um, you'd say, gosh, some of this stuff bothers me a little bit. I'm not used to hearing this. Um, I just want to encourage you, whatever view of Scripture we have must be in concert with what we observe in Scripture. And so I would just encourage you to see what you observe in Scripture. And maybe you're getting into the water a little bit, and it feels a little cold at first. But then as you get in, you get used to it, and then you see, hey, the water's fine. It really is. Mm -hmm. As you become more and more familiarized with the Scripture, and you study it line by line like that in comparison in parallel columns. 
Yeah, to get a little bit self-serving on my end, since you recommended your book here, I'm going to recommend the ebook I co-wrote on this, Defining Inerrancy, where I was real one look at this from an approach of how, how do you look at inerrancy of these kinds of things, and I think you'll find it a great read. If you go through it, you can probably read it in an evening or so, and one other thing I'd add that I don't think you mentioned this, go to your library and look up biblical commentaries and see what so many other scholars are saying about this passage. About sometimes you can get the difficulty of that one question you're wanting to have answered. That seems to be the verse the commentator just didn't want to spend as much time on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but, but make use of your library. I, I, I do that for this show as well. And so, Monica. What's your take now at the end of the day about why are there differences in Gospels? And is this a problem? I don't think it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think it impacts the historical reliability of the Gospels at all. Um, I think we just have to read the Gospels within the genre of ancient biography and it sheds a lot of light on why there are differences in the Gospels when we see the compositional devices they used. Those aren't the only reasons for the differences. They're also, like I said, redaction where they are intentionally changing some things in order to highlight certain points coming from different perspectives. There are cases where you can harmonize, um, and I think that some of those make sense. Um, But if the authors of ancient literature had these common compositional devices, and certain of them even prescribed in the compositional textbooks for paraphrasing, then not only should we expect to see these things in the Gospels, we should be surprised if we did not see these things in the Gospels. So I think, you know, this, this doesn't impact historical reliability. It sheds a lot of light on the Gospels. Um, and not only the differences, but when you read the Gospels in light of their biographical genre, things such as the high Christology of Jesus being God's uniquely divine Son, God in some sense, in Mark's Gospel becomes quite clear, as I show in, a, uh, in my book as well. Mm-hmm. So un- reading the Gospels in light of their biographical genre has a lot of benefits for understanding them. I guess I would just close by saying that— um, uh, you know, when I was young, um, I got a pair of walkie-talkies for Christmas. And walkie-talkies back then in the 60s, <laughs> in the 60s and early 70s, they weren't nearly as good as they are today. So I remember that I, I, I had one, gave it to my grandfather in the house, and I walked outside. And by the time I got to the back of the house, I started getting static. And the further away I walked, the more static came. And so the thing is, the further that we are removed from the past, the more static historical noise uh, enters the scene. Why? Because they had customs, they had linguistic idioms, literary conventions, of which we don't know about today. Mm -hmm. And the noise makes it difficult to understand clearly what is being said. You know, one that I struggle with that I can't figure out is when Jesus says they're going to take you, they're going to whip you and scourge you and throw you in prison and and kill you. But 
he who endures to the end, not a hair on his head will be harmed. Well, wait a minute. You know, why don't just pull the hair out if you want, take my hair, um, but leave the skin on my back. Don't crucify me. You know what's going on there? What does that mean? Well, that's a linguistic idiom that we don't have today. And to date, I haven't found it anywhere else. So I'm not sure exactly what Jesus means by this. Mm-hmm. So it's that historical noise that can make things a little difficult to understand. But by studying the ancient literature, by finding out and discovering some of the stuff, we can filter out some of that noise and come to understand the Gospels more as they were intended to be understood. And Mike, do you have a uh, blog or website and email where people can get in touch you if everyone find out more? I don't have a blog. I have a website, risenjesus.com, mm-hmm. um, or they can go to my YouTube channel, which they just go to YouTube and type in my name and you'll see uh, my channel come up and they can go there. We've, I don't have a ton of videos. I have nearly a hundred, I think. Um, so they can go there. So we're on YouTube. I'm on Facebook. Um, I have a, a regular page and a public figure page, but my regular page, I was up to over, I was up to 5,000. And so I just deleted, uh, I think I'm down to 800 people and I don't, you know, accept people unless I actually know them. But I, I put most of everything on my public figure page anyway, and they can get in touch with me by liking that page and sending me messages there. Now, the book is Rival Differences in the Gospels for Kinder. The amount right now for it is $14.39. If you want to get it hardcover, it's $32.04. Mike, do you have any final message you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience? No, I'm just uh, happy to be on the program with you again, Nick. I think you're doing a great job. and mm. And... Uh, and, and just hello to everybody, and I hope you've enjoyed in this uh, session and uh, and have benefited from it. And Mike, it, it's great to have you on. I, I thank you for coming on, your friendship, and of course, I thank you for Ali, especially the, the greatest gift I have for apologetics. I don't think she could ask for a better husband, Nick. We love you, buddy. Yeah, and I'd like to remind everyone that uh, next week we're going to have Sam Shamoon on here. We're going to be talking about answering Islam, how to deal with Islam. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>